If you'll go ahead and turn, open up to the book of Titus, that's where we're going to spend our time this morning, and we're going to resume our study. And while you're turning there, for those who maybe are joining us for the first time or for our regular members, it's been a few weeks since we've been in the book, and so we provided the expositional outline uh, for the book of Titus in the bulletin. And after we started our study, we did a background of the book so that we could uh, get a little bit of the backdrop on uh, what was taking place and the reason why Paul wrote the letter. And then we talked about uh, the Apostle Paul as the ministry messenger, and we noticed something right away. Paul displays an incredible passion for ministry and the church. His heart is on fire for the Lord and the spiritual health and vitality of the church. And then this led us to the motive for why the Apostle Paul was led to write the letter. And he wanted to see our, our growing faith. He wanted to see purpose, growth, and uh, a promised future. And then the Lord used the Apostle Paul to address what was probably one of the most important things that he could address right from the get-go, and that was leadership in the local church. We had a series called The Priority of Church Leadership, and it led Paul to record specific qualifications for the men who would be established as overseers and elders in the churches on the island of Crete. Well, today's message will focus on Titus 1.9, which you can see back on and up and running. Yes, we are. Praise the Lord. Take two. Here we go. This is Hollywood style. All right. So um, verse uh, six allowed us to uh, see that God's word assesses a leader's relationship to um, his family, to his wife and kids, both as a husband and as a father. And then in verse seven, we saw that God's word assesses a leader's relationship to his own character. And I called this the knothead verse. This, is, this um, tells uh, the leader what he must not be. They must not be self-willed. They must not be quick-tempered, addicted to wine, pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. And then in verse 8, God's word assesses a leader's relationship to others. And today we're going to finish this passage by seeing how God's word assesses a leader's relationship to the word, to God's word. Well, let's pray together and we'll ask God to bless our time that it will be fruitful. Please join me. Almighty Father, as the Puritans prayed, would you take your divine scalpel and use your word to operate on us? We rejoice in the grace that you have given to us through your Son and the glorious gospel. You have allowed us to see your standard of holy perfection that we can never achieve by human merit. There is only one who has lived the perfect life. The perfect life that we could never live. And that is your Son in whom we trust in for our salvation. We rejoice in the great provision and His perfect righteousness. And your redeeming love and work in our lives has enabled us to worship with sincere motives and true desires to walk in faithfulness. Your desire is to help us grow and bring you glory in our thoughts in our actions, in our heart attitudes. And we thank you for the sanctifying work of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would continue to mold us and shape us, refine us into the men and women of God that you're calling us to be. Help us not to be merely hearers of the word, but to 
see the rich blessing of being doers of the word. James shares with of the word and not a doer. He is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror for once he has looked at himself and gone away. He has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But you, Father, want us to look intently at your perfect law, the law of liberty, and abide by it, not being a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, so that we can be blessed in what we do. Guide us to understand the law of liberty and the freedom that comes from walking in the power and strength of your Holy Spirit. And Father, as we finish our journey through these leadership qualifications today, help us to see that these character qualifications for leaders in the church are spiritual character descriptions for all of us as believers. You desire for every believer in the church to cultivate these characteristics in our lives. Help us to grow in these areas so that you can be glorified through our lives and that we can all give testimony to your work, grace, and growth in our walks. We ask this in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen. Amen. Titus chapter 1, and we could probably turn that down just a tad. Titus chapter 1, verses 4 through 9 says this, to Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. The title of today's message is it's not a Catholic service, okay? Mass, message is a firm grasp on God's word. And our focus today will be on verse 9. Okay, and this is not only the last of the qualifications, but it's actually the most developed of the qualifications. It's the longest. And it'll be the only qualification I believe that we spent an entire sermon on. In the context, this qualification also prepares us for the way of instruction concerning false teachers in the following verses in 10 through 16, which we'll start to study next Sunday. As believers, God wants us to have a grasp on his word. Think about all the ways that God's word blesses us. It protects. It corrects. It directs. It inspects. It detects, it rejects, it reflects, it connects. And that's a short list of all the rhyming, okay, all, all the rhyming words, okay? But it also, it illuminates, it instructs, it equips, it strengthens, it sanctifies, it convicts, it comforts, it praises, it proclaims. 
it blesses. And on and on the list goes from his word. And so it should come as no surprise that God wants us to have a firm grasp on his word. And it should also come as a surprise that when it comes to the leadership in the church, that God specifically calls them and says that they must, they must have a firm grasp on his word. The sermon proposition is right there in your bulletin for you. God wants church leaders and church members to have a firm grasp on his word. And our focus again will be on verse 9. So as a believer, how can we know if we have a firm grasp on his word? When determining who is qualified to stand before the people and teach from the pulpit or to teach in equipping hour or to teach in some ministry of the church, how can we determine whether or not that person has a firm grasp on the word of God? Titus 1.9 gives us answers to these questions. The outline's in your notes, and let's tackle our first uh, point together, and it's this. A firm grasp on God's word is marked by devotion. Verse 9 begins by saying, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. Your translation might say holding firm. In fact, I think that's what the ESV has. Or be devoted to. This word can also mean cling to a belief. And it carries the idea of sincere devotion. And the present tense is um, also found in the middle voice. And if you're seminary, this is what that means. It, it, it means that it's, it, it's, it's a reference to, to self. And the present tense underscores that this should be something that is the pattern of a person's life. So it could actually be translated holding firm for oneself, which helps communicate that this should characterize the person's life. And this same word is actually used in the Gospels in Luke and Matthew. And our Lord Jesus Christ uses the word in Matthew 6.24 and Luke 16.13. When he's talking about someone and their inability to serve two masters, he says, for he will either cling to one or be devoted to one and despise the other. Same word. And God wants church leaders and church members to have a firm grasp on his word. The storms of life come. Turbulent Seas will come in our life. Many people don't have a firm grasp on the Word. I don't know about you, but I'm not a very good swimmer. I was an okay swimmer growing up, but now it takes all the effort that I possibly can muster up to swim from one end of the pool and back. It's difficult. Trials in our lives function like deep waters. Initially, and what is most common, is that in our flesh, we often try to swim in our own strength. And it doesn't take long before the Lord allows us to see that we're drowning in the sea of our circumstances when it comes to spiritual trials. And there are burdens 
The burdens at work get heavy. Relationships in our marriages with family members, relatives, co-workers, they get strained. Maybe discouragement comes as a mom who is disciplining the kids all day and it doesn't seem like there's much fruit that's being produced. It can be very discouraging. Or maybe it's a financial crunch causing stress in a marriage or on the family and the pressure cooker of the next mortgage payment. That next electric bill with the AC running so much, the next credit card statement, the next whatever. The point is this, storms come and turbulent seas challenge and can potentially overwhelm all of us. Who do you cling to when they come? What do you cling to when they come? To whom do you run? God wants church leaders and church members to have a firm grasp on his word so that we can cling to it in our hour of need. It truly is a life preserver. And it's described in Titus 1.9 in two ways, which are in your outline. First, it is described as the faithful word. The adjective faithful, which Paul was led to include by the Holy Spirit, is used to describe the word, the logos in the, in the Greek. And it's not just any word, but it's the pistos logos, faithful word. And it means that we can trust it. It means that it's not going to steer us wrong. And one of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs 13.13 13, that says this. The one who despises the word will be in debt to it, but the one who fears the commandment will be rewarded by it. Imagine for a moment you're physically drowning in deep water and someone casts you one of those, you know, the round life preservers and they, they throw it out to you. Wisdom would call you to cling to it. Only a fool would despise it. Only a fool would look with contempt at the person that threw it to them. But this is exactly what happens spiritually in the pride of our human heart. Oftentimes, we resist the counsel of God's Word and attempt to prevail in our own strength or dismiss the reality of what God's Word is faithfully providing and we don't think that we need the spiritual counsel. And I don't, need, I don't need somebody to come up whom the Lord is using as a messenger and as an instrument to, to tell me what I so desperately need to know. God's word functions as a life preserver. And a firm grasp is marked by faithful devotion to the faithful word. And we hold it close as if our lives depend on it because in the, in the end they do. And we see this when the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And in Matthew 4, 4, when he's out in the wilderness and he's getting tempted and he responds with the, the, the verse from Deuteronomy. And, and he, he says that man cannot live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In the same way that we cling to our daily food to be sustained, the Lord Jesus Christ, in a loving and gracious way, is helping us to see that by divine design, God wants us to grasp his word to truly live and thrive spiritually. And I also don't think that it's ironic that the Lord Jesus Christ is getting tempted at this point. 
how do you think devotion to the Word of God should function in the life of a believer? Just ask yourself that question. How, what does devotion to the Word of God practically look like? That's, we, we all have to, God wants us to ask that question. He, he wants us to, to search our hearts. He wants us to, to cling to His Word, and we can help ourselves by asking that question. How does holding fast or firmly to the Word in your own life bless you and bless others? It is God's desire to bless us with wisdom in every hour of every day. Yet it isn't going to happen unless we're faithfully and consistently reading our Bibles. And those who are marked with humility will endorse the beauty of God's faithful word and give great testimony to how it blesses us regularly. Amen? Amen? It does. It does. My, 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 my heart, that, you know, Proverbs, just those life verses that we constantly run to. Proverbs 51, a harsh word stirs up strife. A gentle answer turns away wrath. My wife doesn't know how much that proverb has blessed our marriage. It has. It has. In, in great measure, right? Because in my flesh, and I'm such a pathetic sinner, I, I, I am. I, I truly am. And, and, and I need God's word. And, and that's what's going to allow me to respond in the spirit. Well, a firm grasp on God's word is marked by devotion to the faithful word. And then there's a second description in the verse, and it says this to the teaching. Really, we're talking about a firm grasp that is marked by devotion to the teaching of God's faithful word. And it goes without saying that we have to know God's word before we can teach God's word. And both are marked by devotion. And we see examples of this both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And I want us to look at an Old Testament illustration. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. And Ezra is reading the law to the people. And he says this, starting in verse 1 of chapter 8 of Nehemiah, and all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And he read it before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday. In the presence of men and women and those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for the purpose, and beside him were Matthiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. On his right hand, uh, Padeah, Mishael, Melchijah, Heshem, Heshabinah, Zechariah, and Meshalem on his right hand. Thank you for praying for me to get through this. Ezra opened the book and in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. Then when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen and Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. 
and Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shebathai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peleah, the Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. I share that illustration. Why? Because Ezra knew the word. Ezra, he, he understood the word, the faithful word, and he had to understand it. And he and his cohorts that are mentioned in verse 7 needed to know what it said in order to explain it to the people. From the youngest to the oldest. And this passage provides really an Old Testament example of expository preaching. They read the text and then they explained the text so that the people could understand it. And a firm grasp on God's word was marked by Ezra's devotion to the faithful word. We have another great example in uh, the New Testament. And if you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 18. Here we have the example of a Jew named Apollos. We'll start chapter 18, verse 24. It says this, Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Apollos serves as a great example for us because he was a man who knew the word. He knew the word, and yet he's also humble enough to know that, um, to, to receive the instruction that Aquila and Priscilla were trying to help him to see with greater clarity. The scripture doesn't tell us what exactly he was teaching. Where, where he was off, but they, they, they pulled him aside to help him um, be able to teach more effectively. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of someone who not only has a firm grasp on God's word marked by devotion, but they're also, uh, they're, they're, they have the faithful word, but then there's a commitment and a willingness to be teachable so that they can grow in their understanding to the faithful word. Well, one of the cornerstone ministry pillars is preaching the word with precision. And it's on a banner right behind us. And it's our desire as a church, a church family, to hold each other accountable to the word. And this means that whoever stands up behind this pulpit is going to be devoted to the text, is going to be committed to the text, to the faithful word, and to the teaching of the faithful word. And this person will have to have a firm grasp on God's word that is marked by devotion. 
And it also means, according to the verse that's down here on the bottom and those that are sitting over on the sides, you can't see it, but Acts 17.11 is down there. And it is the description of the Bereans who examine the scriptures to make sure that things were so. There is mutual accountability that takes place. It is a beautiful expression of the body of Christ to hold each other accountable in this regard. And God wants church leaders and church members to have a firm grasp on His Word. A firm grasp on God's Word is marked by devotion, devotion to the faithful Word, as well as devotion to the teaching of the faithful Word. Our second point is this. A firm grasp on God's Word is marked by doctrine. Verse 9 continues. Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with teaching. And then we get this purpose clause. So that he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine. And I know there's a both in there, and I'll come back to that a little bit later. But we're going to hit this one first. He will be able, or the Greek is saying, he'll be capable to exhort, urge, encourage in sound doctrine. And notice this progression. Sincere devotion is connected to sound doctrine. Sincere devotion is connected to sound doctrine. And clinging to the word of God will enable a person to possess the power or ability that the person would not have otherwise. And this power will enable them to exhort. That's a very interesting compound Greek word. Um, pronounced parakaleo. Okay, the, the first word is kaleo in, in the Greek means to call and para uh, means to it means beside. And it can range in meaning from encourage uh, encouragement on the softer softer side all the way to encouragement on the much firmer side. And it's one of the essentials of biblical preaching. And that's why Second Timothy four two, which is actually a part of the pillar that we, we when we preached on that pillar. It says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And then it continues in verse 3. It says, for the time will come where they will not endure sound doctrine. The exhortation of Titus 1.9 is to be in sound doctrine. And what's really interesting, too, is that word parakaleo, the cognate, the noun form of it is paraclete. And it's what's used to refer to the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus Christ as they come alongside of us to help us. And so when a man clings to the Word of God and he places himself in partnership with the author and subject of Scripture, he's able to encourage in great measure. He's able to exhort others to, to, to walk in their faith. Clinging to the Word of God in devotion enables this ability to exhort in sound doctrine. And the Greek word for sound doctrine is made up of two words. The word translated doctrine can also be translated teaching, and it shares the same root of the word that's mentioned as teaching, uh, teaching earlier in the verse. And according to Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, and I brought it, uh, with me because I'm going to make a reference to it, to it later. He said that doctrine is what the whole Bible teaches us 
about some particular topic. And that's a pretty broad definition. But his systematic theology actually breaks down doctrine into seven different categories. And I shared these during the FOF class for those who were there. But I thought it would be good for us to just see those. The doctrine of the Word of God is called bibliology. The doctrine of God, of course, is called theology. The doctrine of Christ and the Holy Spirit, Christology, and pneumatology. The doctrine of man, anthropology. The doctrine of the application of redemption, okay, salvation, soteriology. The doctrine of the church, ecclesiology, and the doctrine of the future, or the end times, the eschaton, eschatology. And what is unique is that the Greek adjective that the Holy Spirit led Paul to use, which is pronounced hygiano, is actually the same root, Greek root, from where we get our word hygiene. So when we're talking about sound doctrine, we're talking about healthy doctrine. We're, we're, we're healthy or sound doctrine. And so this is something that Paul was led to include, and of course they would have made the connection to the, the, and those who spoke Greek. They, they would have um, made the connection uh, to this term and the, the health uh, of what it provides. Well, when we're talking about sound doctrine today, we're blessed to have a few provisions that the Apostle Paul and Titus and those in the first century church didn't have. One, we have access to a complete New Testament canon, right? So we have all of Scripture to refer to. Second, we have the provision of books, like the one I just held up, historical and systematic theologies that allow us to see how um, all of Scripture can be compiled and, and teach us what it has to say about sound doctrine. Okay, They're categorized in, in, as different doc doctrines for the sake of efficiency and effectiveness. Who in the room has ever had a major surgery? Would you just raise your hand? I just want to see. I, I've had nine of them. So my football days really took a toll on me. You guys know, many of you know the story. I've, I've just, on my spine alone, uh, two neck surgeries and three lower back. I, can I see your hands again? Those who have ma major surgery, okay. Um, I actually, considering our medical staff that's in here, I should be asking who in the room has performed a major surgery. That's, that's more, more like the question. My reason for asking is that it's absolutely amazing to see all the precautions that are taking place in a surgical room before a surgery is performed. It's, it's crazy. All the things that take place to make sure that everything in the OR, that stands for operating room, for those of you who aren't up to speed like the rest of us medical people, okay? <laughs> OR is operating room, okay? And um, I also know what... Um, HIPAA is Health Information Privacy and Portability Act, because I served for a healthcare <laughs> organization um, uh, for a little while too, and I wish that I could forget that, but I can. It just it stayed in my mind. But just listen to this brief description of how a room gets prepped before a surgery takes place. First, those who prepare the operating room have to put on hairnets, scrubs, masks, and shoe coverings. Then they follow the proper hand-washing procedure. They wash up to their elbows. They scrub their fingernails and hands with a brush. 
Then there's a procedure for putting on sterile gowns and gloves in the surgery room. And they designate one person as the clean person and one person as the sterile person. Helpers prepare a clean workspace by cleaning the operating table, the moving cart, and the stainless steel cart with 70% ethanol. Helpers then assist the clean and sterile person into gloves. Then preparation of the surgery trays takes place. They unwrap the tray using a special sterile technique. The designated clean person partially removes the first non-sterile paper layer in a way that the second sterile paper layer is exposed and available for the sterile person to grab. The sterile person grabs the sterile wrap tray and unwraps the second layer. Then the sterile person places the tray on the end of the operating table. Then they unwrap towels using the sterile technique. And then they unwrap the instruments using the sterile technique and place them on the surgery tray. Then a person opens the individually wrapped instruments and dumps the sterile instruments onto the sterile towel workplace. Then a sterile person picks up the instruments and places the instruments onto the tray according to the instrument layout. Finally, the sterile person places four small sterile towels over the tray to cover the instruments until surgery. All that takes place before, there's not even an incision made, okay? All that takes place. Note the incredible attention to detail for hygiene. Why do they follow all these steps? Why do they have this protocol in place? I'll tell you why. Because they don't want the person who is being performed on physically to be at risk for any infection or germs that can exist in the air or potentially have been brought in the room, right? That's what they do. It. And, 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 and it can be potentially life-threatening. It's a serious protocol for good reason. Question for you. If all these precautions are firmly grasped when performing physical surgery on a human being, a finite and sinful creature, really, how much more precautions should be exercised when grasping the instructions that are used to teach us about the infinitely holy and perfectly righteous God of the universe? I'm holding two books in my hands. They're both systematic theologies. One is by Robert Duncan Culver, great resource. The other one, familiar, much more familiar name, Wayne Grudem. If you don't have one of these resources, I, I, I would encourage you, um, they're, they're not cheap, okay? They're gonna probably cost you 40 or 50 bucks, an investment. But I would pick, pick, pick one of these two up. It will, it will bless you immensely. And if you don't have the money, we have some extra copies of Grudem here at the church. You can check them out. You can just sign them out. You can spend some time with them. A great application in the starting point would be to pick a, doc, a doctrine that interests you. Maybe it is Christology. Maybe it is pneumatology. Maybe it is anthropology. Whatever interests you, find a way to scratch that itch. Grow in sound doctrine. The study of doctrine 
systematically is a great discipline that can yield tremendous fruit in the life of a believer. And it also, it fills us up so that we can bless other people. It allows us to be anchored with, with, with soundness of faith. It, it allows us to stand firm. You know, I use the example, and of course we, we get enriched and blessed by looking to the Word for a, a number of different things. We don't only go to it when we're in trials, right? But I, I, I use trials because if God's Word is sufficient to get us through the darkest hours of our day, the darkest hours of our life, if it's sufficient then, then it's going to be sufficient for any other time that we face as a believer. One of my wife's disciplers in Hickory shared uh, with my wife that the more she spends in the Word, the more useful she is to God. And I thought that is really a great perspective. The more she spends, she, she's seen this in her life, the more that, that, that she's investing, studying the Scriptures and studying sound doctrine, the more useful that she is for the church and, and blessing and encouraging people. And that's what it's calling us to do, to bless, to, to exhort, to encourage. It not only helps her to stand firm in trials, but the promises of Scripture and sound doctrine help her to encourage others to stand firm. It allows her to share the promises that she's learned from God, that they can cling to. Well, we have now reached our third and final point, and we'll see how this all ties together. First, a firm grasp on God's Word is marked by sincere devotion. Second, a firm grasp on God's Word is marked by sound or healthy doctrine. And then third, a firm grasp on God's Word is marked by discernment. Verse 9 finishes this way, and I'll read the whole verse. Holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine, and then our final phrase, and to refute those who contradict. Notice the logical progression. A firm grasp on God's word is marked by severe, uh, sincere not severe devotion, that equips a believer to exhort in sound doctrine as well as refute those who contradict with sobering discernment. The word translated refute can also be translated expose or show one's fault. Some of you may have heard this illustration before. The United States Secret Service spends millions of dollars every year protecting our money. Attempts to counterfeit U.S. currency happen on a regular basis, so special agents need to be trained to detect counterfeit bills. This is such a good illustration. I had to use it again. What I find really interesting, though, is that the special agents of the Secret Service that are trained to detect counterfeit bills, they only allow them to study the real notes, the real bills. And the goal of the Secret Service is to have those agents so well trained by knowing the real thing. They know the real thing so well 
that when any defection, anything comes across the table that looks different, they're able to detect it. When they see something false or deceptive that tries to be put into circulation, they're able to detect it right away. Pretty cool. And that shows you why I'm not in the Secret Service, nor am I an agent. Why? Because I'd probably be studying all the counterfeits. I mean, oh, I'm going to find out what they look, you know, I'm going to know what the fake money looks like. No. I have it. That, that, that would be backwards. They only study the real thing. Did you know on the United States Secret Service website that it actually shares this statement? The public has a role in maintaining the integrity of U.S. currency. You can help guard against the threat from counterfeiters by becoming more familiar with United States currency. Look at the money you receive. Compare a suspect note with a genuine note of the same denomination and series, paying attention to the quality of printing and paper characteristics. Look for differences, not similarities. Now, if the Secret Service has indicated that we play a role as an American citizen in helping maintain the integrity of U.S. currency, how much greater is our role as believers to have a firm grasp on God's word to protect us from doctrinal counterfeits? How much more important? Extremely, extremely important. What a valuable principle for us to apply when it comes to the study of God's word. Sobering discernment is required to detect and protect against error and deception. Now, in many instances, false doctrine and aberrant teaching based on a false understanding of Scripture, it isn't something that churches and ministries intentionally pursue, right? They're not trying to, they're not trying to get it wrong, Okay? What happens is that their interpretation of Scripture is compromised in some way, and we're all liable to this happening. And this is where good hermeneutics become vital for the church, its teachers and its members. And hermeneutics are principles that are used to interpret Scripture correctly. And so to build a bridge to application for today, I wanted to um, do an overview, and that'll take place next hour, rather than try to um, cover a, a lot of ground, even in this moment with this sermon. I want to take some time next hour during our equipping hour, and those that are guests, our equipping hour is basically like a Sunday school hour, where we just get equipped with some additional truths that really will bless us, and we have a break after the service for uh, at least a good 30 or 40 minutes, then we come back and we, we rally around, and we're going to go ahead and study uh, an overview of, of hermeneutics. Well, God wants church leaders and church members to have a firm grasp on his word so that the scriptures function as a filter for discernment. And as we've learned from Titus 1.9, a firm grasp on God's word is marked by devotion. It is marked by sound doctrine. And it is also marked by sobering discernment. Please close our, by your heads and I'll close our service by praying. Gracious Father, we rejoice in you. 
Thank you for your faithfulness and allowing us to see the rich value and the blessing of Titus 1.9. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who shared with us the importance in Matthew 4.4 just when he talked about what we need to even live. We need your word. We can't live on physical food alone. And Lord, I'll be the first to confess that there have been times where and weeks where my Bible has not been opened up. That the busyness of the day has hijacked my attention right from the start. Even doing ministry things. And yet you would not want me to compromise in that regard. You, you want us to cling to your word. You want us to bathe in your word. It's refreshing to, to sit in it. To allow it to soak in spiritual understanding. That it would fortify us with truth. That it would illuminate our path. That it would protect us from spiritual potholes or Worse yet, spiritual landmines and bombs that could cause serious, serious damage to our lives spiritually. Father, thank you for your grace and goodness to even provide us with this reminder this day. Help us to have a firm grasp on your word. That we can know your wisdom, not only so that it can bless our personal lives, but that it can be personal so that we can reach out and bless others with godly counsel and instruction. It's how you will receive the most glory. And we thank you for giving us the opportunity to do that very thing. We thank you for this time that we had to rally around your word. We ask that you'll bless us in the remainder of our morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.